Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. think that I, I really need to kind of point your attention to the fact that uh, the world's pretty weird right now, right? Agreed? Like inflation, uh, rising interest rates again this week, uh, gas, groceries, fill in the blank, right? Uh, all of that stuff that we're experiencing today in our world, it, it doesn't lend itself to a hopeful world outlook, does it? And the reality is the uncertainty doesn't end in our economic system or in the cultural situation of our world. The, the uncertainty extends beyond that, as we all know, into every aspect of our church identity. There's all this stuff that's happening in the church universal, how people have come to mistrust or distrust or downright disparage followers of Christ, the institution of the church. And, and that has all caused uh, the world to mistrust us and our identity as followers of Jesus. And then there's turmoil within our denominational structure as we figure out, you know, who are we going to be as we go on into the future? But probably more real for us than any of that is the pain that we have felt in this church over the past year. It's, it's messy. It hurts. And it doesn't inspire a lot of hope normally. And I don't know about you all, but... I'm perfectly fine if Jesus wants to come back and relieve us of having to deal with all the messes, okay? Amen? <laughs> but here's the thing. It's hard. It's really, really, really hard to be the church when our hope starts to fade. And, and I think that it's really hard to be the church when our hope starts to fade because when our hope starts to fade, it gets really hard for us to love anyone outside of ourselves. We kind of tend to jump into survival mode or we isolate from all of the problems that we're experiencing. We, we focus on ourselves, and that doesn't leave us with much room to love our neighbors. It makes it really hard to, to love and to trust God because things just don't make any sense. It's pretty normal. It's pretty human to react in these ways and to feel this way. But the reality for those of us who take on the identity of followers of Jesus, for Christians, 
We aren't called to live like that. Actually, kind of the opposite. You might recall this interaction that Jesus had with some Pharisees the week before he went to the cross. It comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. It says, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He said, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Not a bad question. But he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so what Jesus commands are really pointing us to is that we are called as followers of Jesus, as humans who are created in the image of God, to be people who live lives of overflowing love. Love that overflows and, and towards God and love that overflows towards our neighbors. And this love is rooted and grounded in the hope that we have in Christ. But I'm going to be honest with you about this because it's easy to let all the messes drag me down. And when they do... When I find that I'm, I'm just thinking about myself and uh, how all of the mess of this world is weighing on me. One of the things that kind of smacks me back into reality, into remembering who I am and who I've called to be as an as agent of God's love in this world whose hope is rooted and grounded in Christ Jesus, is I remember a, a particular story that has always stuck with me from, from the very first time that I ever read it. And uh, it, it's a story that comes to us uh, through a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And uh, this story is uh, true. <laughs> it's written by a man named Viktor Frankl. And I want you to read this book, so I'm not going to, like, ruin it for you, but I, I want you to understand uh, the, the gist of it. So, so Viktor Frankl was a, a Jewish man who practiced psychotherapy in Austria leading up to the time when it was annexed into Nazi Germany. And at that time, uh, shortly after, he was brought into the circuit of concentration camps. And he moved through the system from camp to camp, eventually ending up at the infamous Auschwitz. In each step of the way, he lost more and more of his family members. And so while Victor was living in like the most dire of human circumstances, you know, under the thumb of the most atrocious human evil that we've experienced in our lifetimes, what he did was uh, he studied people. I mean, he's a shrink after all. That's, that's what we do. And what he found by studying people in the midst of these dire circumstances was that there was one thing that some people had that enabled them and empowered them to live. And that one thing was hope. Hope that they would someday fulfill their purpose. 
For a baker, it was hoped that he would one day be able to bake bread and sell it again. For Victor himself, it was that one day he would simply be able to have a practice again, see patients, and help them overcome the mental health issues that were ailing them. Essentially, what Victor surmised was that humanity, every single day, all humans are given one simple choice. A choice that he put rather poetically in this quote from his book. He says, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. And this is a, a really important truth, because when we make a conscious choice each day to allow all of the uncertainty of our world, all of the negativity of our lives, live in our heads rent-free, we are choosing not to place all of our hope in Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom. We are choosing rather to be consumed by the situations that we find ourselves in instead of the love which God has called us to be conduits of. And so with that being said, this is our, our final message in this series, which is titled Salutations, a, a series that we've been exploring uh, who the church is called to be through. And what we've discussed is that we are a, a church who's called to live out our faith loudly. We're a church who is called to uh, be an assembly of gifted persons who use their gifts to glorify God. We are called to be a church who has a sacred identity of God's chosen, redeemed, and renewed people. And so this week is our final week, and what we are looking at is how we are called to be a community of people who overflow with love. And so we're going to look at the uh, opening words that, of Paul to the church in Philippi and see what his salutation to them says about how we are called to live out this call to be a church that overflows with love. And so I'll just jump right into the beginning here. And so this is Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy. It's not me. I wasn't born yet. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. See, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, Paul was uh, a master rhetorical speaker, as we've kind of discussed over the past several weeks. And, and so what Paul has here is another uh, kind of rhetorical strategy that's going to take on a three-part structure kind of like last week, but focusing on different things. And in his opening uh, to the people of Philippi here, basically he's going to, to focus on uh, 
past, present, and future. And what this strategy is going to do, what Paul is going to do through it, is he's going to highlight the attitude that he has regarding each of these uh, time periods and how that attitude points towards a life that is overflowing with love. And so Paul, at the time uh, of this writing, while he's writing this letter to the church uh, in Philippi, he's sitting in jail. <laughs> and Paul was like a frequent flyer of the Roman jail system. Like if there was a three-strike rule, Paul would have definitely been one who uh, fell victim to it, right? Paul, when he went around causing... Uh, he caused disturbances as he went around preaching the gospel everywhere that he went. And so scholars kind of debate, you know, where's Paul at when he writes the letter to the Philippians? Well, it doesn't really matter to us today, so we won't really get into that. But what matters is that Paul is in jail. And he's sitting in jail, and Roman jails were not a, a cool place to be. What he says to himself, he's like, man, you know what? Timothy, get my, get my quill and some papyri, I need to write a letter. I'm going to write a letter to my friends in Philippi. And the church in Philippi was, was a church that, that Paul planted. It, he's got like a really strong relationship with them because of this, as can be evidenced through, you know, the vocabulary that, that we see Paul using. He's like, I thank God for you. I pray for you with joy, which seems like totally normal. But here's the thing. Um, Paul's time in Philippi, it wasn't a good time. <laughs> sure, I, I imagine that he had some sweet memories with the church and those that he led to, uh, to know Jesus. But the highlight of Paul's time in Philippi is centered around uh, a story from the book of Acts. I'm not going to read you the whole story, but the gist of it is this. Paul and his traveling partner at the time, a guy named Silas, they heal a girl who's possessed by a demon. And this demon that she was possessed by gave her uh, an extraordinary power of divination. Essentially, she could see things that normal people can't see, including the future. And it turned out that this young lady that Paul and Silas healed was not a free citizen. She was a slave. She was owned by some other citizens of Philippi. And those, her owners, marketed her remarkable skill. And so when Paul and Silas healed her of the demon and thus released her of her power to see the future, this couple lost their income stream. And what they did was what any of us would do, lashed out in anger, and had Paul and Silas thrown into jail. Not exactly a fond memory of a town. But Paul chooses here to focus on the good that came from that trip. The work of the gospel that he had done with the people of the Philippian church. The work of the gospel that he had done not only despite his run-in with the law, but through it. It turned out that God did something amazing through Paul and Silas's imprisonment. And through that miraculous thing, 
a Roman guard and his entire family were brought to faith. And so Paul's frame of mind regarding the past, although he has kind of like every right to be like resentful and angry at this town, is one of acceptance and joy for the time that he spent there, even though it included an unwarranted stay in the local jail, an experience that he happens to be facing yet again. So we'll continue on. So Paul says this next. He says, It is right for me to think this way about you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. So, like we've said, Paul's current reality is not great. He's, he's sitting in jail, which is not a super fun time. Don't know if you've ever been, but it's kind of boring. But especially in Rome, is a harsh place to be. But Paul's state of mind here shines through his words. He's, he's filled with affection and love for these people. He could be all like most of us would probably want to be like, man, poor me. Here I am in jail for something I didn't even do. Must be nice for all of you out there who don't have to deal with this kind of mess. Those of you who are free, what's it, what's it like to do whatever you want when you want it? But Paul's words don't speak in this manner. Instead, he, he talks about how deeply they are in this thing together. He, he speaks with an attitude of love, detailing how they're sharing God's grace together in his imprisonment. And in the mission of the gospel together. There, there's not like even a twinge of jealousy. There's, there's no woe is me here. There's no passive aggression. Paul isn't angry with them at all. But rather, he's deeply affectionate towards them. So just kind of hang on to that for one minute as we move through this last section. And Paul goes on. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. See, Paul rounds out his introduction is opening to the church of Philippi with his prayer or, or really his hope for the church in Philippi and really for, for all followers of Jesus. His prayer, his hope is centered around the coming of Christ as is our true hope in this world. But until his hope it revolves around the growth of this community in love. And Paul's not just talking about sentimental love. Paul's talking about a love that is joined to, to knowing and understanding. A love that is joined to, to probing and to discernment. A love that asks tough questions. A love that 
discovers what the best course of action is based on what we know about who God has revealed himself to be in the past, how we experience God now in the present, and what God's plan is for us in the future kingdom when sin and darkness are swept away and we live in eternal communion with God. And so, you know, as we navigate uh, a world of uncertainty, as we read about our church on the internet or in the newspaper, and as we have discussions about what the future holds, we've been given a choice. We can focus on, on the junk and on the mess of it all, which is very real and very present and impossible to avoid. We can let the trouble that lies ahead and the trouble that has gone before us weigh us down by, you know, looking at the past with resentment because those people or those people or those policies have caused us pain or have contributed to the pain that we are experiencing here today. We can respond to our current situation with anger. We can lash out at those who stand in the way of how we wanted or hoped or wished things would be. And we can approach our future with fear and anxiety. We can circle around what ifs and what could be's until our brains and our hearts explode. But I'm going to tell you that none of that is really helpful to us as individuals, nor is it really helpful to us as a community meant to overflow with love. And so I'd like to offer you the words of Viktor Frankl once again. Now that we're a bit further into this discussion than we were a few minutes ago. And I just invite you to, to really let them sink in. Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. You see, the reality is that we largely aren't given much agency in our life situations. We don't get to choose where we find ourselves throughout our lives most of the time. We didn't get to choose the incredible losses that we faced as a congregation. We didn't get to choose to live in a time of political turmoil, of cultural turmoil, of economic turmoil, of ecclesial turmoil. That's just like a big word for church. But we do get to choose who we are going to be in the midst of all of that. And here's the, the fact. The way that we move through the mess says a lot more about who we are than anything else. And so do we look at the past, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and just accept it for what it is? Do we see that it is comprised and made up by a complex web of relationships and persons and situations who are doing the best that they knew how to do? 
Do we look at our present and see ourselves as a community that overflows with love, seeking to honor God and plant seeds of the gospel and announce the kingdom of God and his righteousness to our world? Do we look at our future with the expectant hope of Christ's return and the restoration of all things? And then work towards making that kingdom as real as we possibly can today until Christ returns. If we do, if you do, that's great. <laughs> but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it isn't exactly natural for most of us. And I get to go out on a limb and I get to say that because it's not always natural for me, your pastor, the guy who's supposed to be a professional Jesus follower. But if I can, if we can, remember that, that Viktor Frankl had undying hope and love for his fellow prisoners and in the heart of Auschwitz, in the heart of evil itself. And if we can remember that Paul could reflect on the past, present, and future love and hope that he had for the people of Philippi while he rotted away in a Roman jail cell, surely you and I can do the same when gas is $4 a gallon. Surely you and I can do the same when we have to have difficult discussions, when we have to make difficult decisions as a church. Surely you and I can choose to allow acceptance, love, and hope to be the driving attitudes and principles in our lives as individuals and in our life together as a community. You know, I'm grateful for the community that this church has chosen to be over the past years, particularly this past year. You have proven yourselves to be resilient, to be focused on justice and your community, and you have proven yourselves to be willing to put in the hard work of ministry. So I just want you to know that I see you and that I celebrate each and every one of you. And I know that over the past four weeks, I've come in here and I've said some things that challenge us. I've come in here and maybe I've pushed the envelope a little bit. And hopefully, my hope is that I stretched your hearts a little bit. See, it's my desire to lead this church in a path of love and righteousness. A, a path of justice and mercy. A path that leads us towards being the most authentic version of what God has envisioned for the church to be and become in the future. And that was the point of this series, of these four sermons. It was so that you might get to know a little bit more about what I believe that God, through Paul, has called the church to be. Where people... We're called to live out our faith loudly, to use our gifts for God's glory, to embrace our identity fully, and to love fiercely with all of our being. 
And I know that we can be this kind of church. I know that we can do anything together. That we can weather any storm, that we can walk through every circumstance, and that we can reflect the face of God in and through every single thing that we do. So let's pray and ask God to show us and help us be all of that. Holy and good God, we thank you that you have given us this opportunity to be in your family, to be your very real and present body here on earth, to stand in the gap until Christ returns. God, we know that we are not perfect at this, and we have no misconceptions that we will be perfect at it at any time in the future. But what we ask is that you would show favor on your church, your church universal, and on this local church of the United Methodist Church here in downtown Fort Pierce. That this church, First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, would be a thriving holy, set-apart, safe haven and sanctuary. That we would be a place whose faith is lived out loudly through word and deed. That we would be a place where the gifts that you have given to us are not squandered, but are yet flourishing in ministry to you and to our world. That we would be a people who take on our identity and invite others to come and join us as your chosen, redeemed, and renewed ones. And that through all of that, all that we do would be out of your love for us and our overflowing love for you and for the people of your world. So God, we, we pray big and bold prayers today. We ask you to challenge us, make us uncomfortable, stretch us, show us the natural things that we can do as we invite you to step in and do the supernatural things that only you can do. Help us to show this world, our town, our conference of the United Methodist Church, that, that churches in downtown areas can be a bold and beautiful beacon of the gospel of Jesus Christ still. That the church in this world is not irrelevant. That the church in this world is not dying. But the church in this world is filled with your Holy Spirit, redeemed through your death on the cross, and invited to change this world through the resurrection. So God, challenge us Change us. Light us on fire for your world. In Jesus' name, amen.